Christ is but the devil in him. Yeah, but I figure what the hell, that's Jersey. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project, for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and uh, again, we have watched uh, a movie. Oh, this is this is one of those movies. It's like I hear the title of this movie and I can hear the opening song just coming <laughs> through because it definitely has a place within pop culture. Yeah, I mean, the, anything that winds up with an original Queen soundtrack is going to have a place in pop culture, I think. Yeah, the original songs for this could almost be a, a, their own episode. Oh, of yeah. The MP. Amazing songs. Uh, on top of uh, of a, a good score in general, plus those songs by Queen. Oh, yeah. It's a very evocative movie because of that. It is pulling a tone into itself, <laughs> a very dramatic tone, because it takes itself very seriously. It does. And my friends and I were taking it pretty seriously at the time, too. Uh, I was in college when this came out. Okay. And I was and I working at, in a student newspaper, and I remember... There being like this anticipation just of the press kit that we knew we were going to get prior to the release of this movie. There's a there was hype for the hype kit. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the movie we're talking about is the 1986 movie Highlander. Oh goodness! I'm immediately just going to come out and say something that seems weird from the start, especially based on the time frame in which you're saying it came out. There's something about Highlander that screams the same energy that the Matrix does to me. Yes. They, yes. They, they, are, they are both movies with this, you know, intense amount of style and this weird mix of when you watch it, there's a lot of scenes that are just longer than you think they are to give you that style because your memory is going to do editing and clipping it down into scale that the the screen never did. You're you're right about that connection with The Matrix in that they are both movies that are heavily action-driven, with lots of fight choreography. I'm putting aside any qualitative comparisons for now. Action-driven movies with a lot of fight choreography. They both have deeper philosophical points to address. Putting aside whether or not they make those. Again, yeah, leaving out any qualitative assessment. And third... They both include a theme of what you believe you know about the everyday world is at best incomplete. Yeah. And yes, yeah, they, they ring the same bells for me too, those two movies, and many others besides. Okay. I, I, I feel better that I'm not crazy relating these two in my mind in that sense, because... There's a lot about Highlander that is just so cheesy when you're watching it that, I mean, I, I think The Matrix can be very cheesy at times too, but there's something about this movie that when you're in the middle of it, you're just going, wait, really? The Matrix was coherent in a way that 
a Highlander doesn't achieve. And I don't yes. mean that oh, it's incoherent. I mean, the Matrix managed to bring these elements together into a unified story and movie in a way that Highlander never quite achieved. The Matrix will at least try to explain vaguely why the guy who attacks you in the parking garage can backflip like this. <laughs> Highlander will just cut to him backflipping and... <laughs> Also, then Backflip Boy is somewhere else with his broadsword again, which wasn't in the previous shot, because continuity is not for action sequences. Action is for action sequences. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah Canon films of the 80s definitely <laughs> prioritized action over, over um, continuity. And this was a, a, a Canon film and a, a, a co-production with a French company, too, I believe. Yeah. And... Because of the fact that Highlander never quite brought all these pieces together, it really struck me on this most recent viewing how much it is more than one movie. Now, maybe I was primed because of some of the comments you made about other recent movies we've talked about, like uh, a Superman. Mm -hmm. But it really struck me that there were at least three different distinct movies, if not four. Yeah. And... I'm tempted, in addition to discussing did Highlander succeed and what was it trying to do, I almost want to assess each of these movies on its own to see what was here and what can we tease out of that? What did what worked? Not just did the movie work, but what worked especially well or not at all. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you already identified one of these movies, the action movie, the fight-driven action movie is definitely... First and foremost, at least the most most evident in this. That's the movie whose plotline is a bunch of people are gathering in New York for a fight to the last man standing, right? Right. So, you know, that could be Rumble in the Bronx. I mean, that could be so many movies. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> films this could be. And this one just happens to imply and state that bladed weapons are advantageous. Oh, yeah. The rules definitely make that clear. Oh, yeah. Because... Because you know that it's part of the magical fighting if everything's coated in blue lightning. And, and, yes. <laughs> and you get to see a lot of, like, that sword shouldn't be able to cut through this. But the moment this guy picks it up and it goes for a moment, suddenly it can. And that's me, like, watching a movie and, once again, figuring out fan headcanon explanations for things that aren't ever stated in the film... Because I'm a person who wants those things to be there, otherwise it'll bug me. Oh, we've got some things to talk about then, absolutely. Oh, goodness. But you've touched on it. This isn't just a fight movie, this is a magic movie. Because the people who are fighting, in case, you don't, in case you're not familiar with this movie, this, uh, the people who are fighting are immortals. I am immortal, inside me flows the blood of kings. <laughs> yeah. They they explain it in the music. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not quite uh, land of the lost level of uh, musical exposition. <laughs> it's not quite. It's getting there. Yeah, yeah. These are immortals. They uh, around the world are these immortals. Pete, nobody knows who they were, where they're from, but they have been alive for hundreds to thousands of years, among variously, and at some point which turns out to be 1985, they are going to be drawn together to complete the battles that they've been waging against one another down through the centuries, because in the end, there can be only one. 
Well, as well, they keep reminding us, there can be only one. I'm kind of amazed that this is that you know the the two men enter, one man leave of Thunderdome is the the quintessential version of that yeah. trope in written. But there can be only one is actually way more impactful. I think it yeah. allows for a larger number of active combatants. Right. I mean, it's 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 several apparently several dozen enter and one leaves at the uh, at the end of of this whole cycle, the gathering. Yeah, and beheading seems to be the only way to uh, succeed in uh, a combat, which means that there's a lot of weirdly gruesome at times fight choreography. Yes, they will reco- uh, an immortal will recover from any wound or illness except beheading. And when a, an immortal is beheaded, there's this big electric magic scene in which the victor of that combat receives all the energy and power of the defeated opponent so that as they get closer to the gathering and there are fewer and fewer immortals and eventually it's got to be a one-on-one of the two remaining they have more power than any other immortals have because presumably they've won lots and lots of fights down through the centuries yeah so yeah it's an interesting bracket i could imagine now (laughs) Or self-enforcing bracket. Uh, yeah, self-enforcing bracket. But I mean, the 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 quickening. As I I don't did they call it directly that in this movie? Well, the quickening is yeah they they kind of use that as an explanation for that blue tingles elsewhere, and then it gets applied to everything. I guess. Yeah, it's really they're not very consistent with that. At yeah. one point, the mentor of our main character describes this just. This ability to have a power surge and telepathy with animals or something is the quickening. But then I get the impression that they, that power surge of receiving the energy from your defeated opponent is also the quickening. I'm just imagining and, if that also includes the telepathy with animals and like the reason why everyone <laughs> kind of screams when they're succeeding is that they're like hearing the thoughts of every squirrel and pigeon in the local new york parks at the same time for just a second it's like oh goodness i can't deal with that and i don't know if i mentioned whoever is the legend is that whoever is the final victor the one who remains at the end of all this is going to get some tremendous prize and power and a new car (laughs) the other one gets riceroni and no head oh no (laughs) So, even with that very sparse description, there's a lot of potential here. Yeah. And they they give us three different movies interwoven here. I mean, one of them is the fight-driven action movie. We know there are going to be a series of fights with various people, all of whom are skilled or they wouldn't have survived this long. And, and all have slightly different takes on the bladed weapon fight. We see right. a couple of different types of swords being implemented. Yeah, we see katana, we see a scimitar, we see uh, a broadsword, we we see several different approaches there. No great axe weapon. <laughs> kind of sad we didn't get a great axe guy. You know, that would be good. They're not the fastest weapon. No. <laughs> They're very good at decapitating if you've got time and the right position. Yeah. This would be a disarm and then use kind of attack strategy. But we see a nice sword variety in, in this, and and it, each fight feels distinct. And they, the, the, yeah. the backflippy fight between Katana and uh, Fancy Sword at the start 
feels very different than katana versus rape uh, versus broadsword later feels very different than scimitar versus broadsword yeah we get very different um uh styles of fighting which is kind of cool these people trained in different places for long periods of time i don't think i don't see any of them that has a oh this is a style from this place designed for this weapon and was taught at this time there's something eclectic about the style of every one of them but they're all differently eclectic and i like that oh yeah and you're right, they start us off right at the beginning with this fight in the in a parking garage under Madison Square Garden in New York. And uh the the opponent of our main character, Connor McLeod. Yes, Connor McLeod. The opponent was played by uh Peter Diamond, who at the time was fifty-seven years old when he made this movie, but he was a veteran stuntman, had had a long career in stunts. He played the Tuscan Raider in a movie called Star Wars. <gasps> Oh, that was him. <laughs> but we got to see his face uh, in this one, at least oh, after he sweet. took the sunglasses off. Yeah. He wasn't the guy doing the backflips, though. Yeah, I have a feeling they had a stand-in for the 57-year-old Mr. Diamond, but it really, maybe I'm wrong. The guy they've got doing the backflips does not quite look enough like Mr. Diamond, so it kind of, for a moment, feels like someone else just backflipped his way through their fight, <laughs> and you get very confused as to who this third guy is. So we have this action movie with all these fights. We also have a detective story. Yeah. Because as the gathering commences and there are more and more of these fights and they all seem to be drawn to the New York City metropolitan area as the place for this final conflict, there are more and more strange homicides involving beheadings. So the police, of course, are investigating this. And a... A forensic analyst, crime scene investigator, who happens to be an expert on ancient metallurgy and weapons, she starts to piece things together between the sword that was left behind to fragments that she could identify as a Japanese kind of of steel. She starts to commence this investigation that leads her to discover the secret of Connor McLeod, who in 1985 is going by the name uh, Nash and is living as an antiques dealer when he's not fighting people at night to keep his head and take theirs. Yeah, there's something vaguely like weird, weird, weird world Batman about him. Like at <laughs> night, I fight the battles in the streets. And during the day, I've got a lot of money in a fancy antiques store. It's like, huh. But it's it's her fighting not only to find the truth, but also kind of fighting the police department internally, because a lot of the rest of the police department is shown to be either dismissive and incompetent or up to straight, straight up misogynistic and racist. Well, they are, but yeah, I've, we can we, we can keep that as a, a commentary about the New York City Police Department in the 1980s. Uh, it may or may not have been accurate. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, that, it's not like they were making a point of that. It was just part of the dialogue. It was in the part movie, of the dialogue, but, but it means that she winds up isolated on this, yeah. this hunt in some ways. She's doing this more and more. The deeper she goes, the less, the less ties back to where she started she has, which means that we watch her giving up and like saying what i'm learning is more important than 
what these other people think is the point. And that's part of the interesting thing about the, the detective story is that contrast. The police detectives, they're trying to do their job. They're plodding along using usual procedure, trying to find witnesses, trying to find patterns between different events. And this is a rather unique situation. So their typical procedure is only getting them so far, especially even when they do get a witness and the witness is ex describing the scene of magical lightning where the guy I just killed got up and killed another guy. But she is pursuing the investigation through a very different approach because she is noticing clues that the others don't. And this is not part of her job. She's supposed to be analyzing crime scenes, analyzing physical evidence, passing the information along to the, to the detectives, and they're the ones who do the investigation. So she's kind of freelancing in this investigation, and that leads her to Nash. Yeah. By the time she is in over her, thankfully for her still attached head, she dives deeper, and that is powerful. And, and of course, this being a movie, it winds up being a relationship with, with Nash, and Nash slash Connor McLeod is played by Christopher Lambert. French actor. Before this, he had made his, um, uh, uh, I don't know if I want to call it American or non-French breakout in the title role of Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Oh! And then he was cast uh, in this. And at the time, he was not fluent in English. Oh! And something I learned recently was that one of the reasons he was cast for this, and I think one of the reasons he was, might have been cast for Tarzan, was he is extremely myopic. Oh. He has very, very poor eyesight. And, of course, he can't wear glasses in this role or any of these roles. So that strange stare into the distance expression he always has, oh. that really works well for a, an immortal with a tortured soul. That's Wait. the fact that Christopher Lambert was doing these scenes and couldn't see a thing. Oh, goodness, really? So so the resting, brooding face is just, I can't see across the stage? Yes. Oh, I love that. It also makes me really, really respect the craft and the courage of Clancy Brown, who plays the big bad guy, the Kurgan, because he's playing these scenes in which they're waving around not sharp, but probably real steel swords. And the guy he's playing against can't see. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh so, my goodness. Know, that's dedication, uh, Clancy Brown. Dang. That, and, is <clears throat> that is amazing. As a person who, without my own glasses, cannot see very far away from myself either, I have mad respect for that. That is awesome. So let's round out the cast then. We've got Christopher Lambert as Connor McLeod. He's going by Nash. Frenchman playing a Scotsman. Yes. We've got Roxanne Hart playing Brenda Wyatt, who's the, the forensic investigator and metallurgy expert. Her first who, name gets called out dramatically much more than her last name. We've got Clancy Brown as the Kurgan. The Kurgan. The, uh, another ancient immortal who, um, who has his sights set on the prize, of course. And then we've got Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Who is a Scotsman. Not playing another Scotsman, but playing an Egyptian who lived for quite a long time in, in, in Japan and ultimately... Like a court advisor to the King of Spain. That's why he's got a Spanish name as well. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, 
Chief Metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. And I'm at your service. Yeah, so he's got a Spanish name, a Japanese sword, is apparently Egyptian, and has a thicker Scottish accent than our Scottish guy. And our Scottish guy was was born in the 14th century. Or no, I'm sorry, not the 14th century. I remember that being a little confusing because when we have our flashbacks to to the Highlands of Scotland, it's kind of a mix of production design. Yeah. Some parts of it look like they are well into the 18th century. Our, our, Some parts of it look like they're in the 13th or 14th century. Our fantasy historical drama with training montage throughout is very mixed bag in terms of when it's depicting, which but, is kind of weird for a thing where how long it's been is actually an important weighty topic. But they do give it uh, they do give it a date and it's in the 1500s since he's in 16th century Scotland. So we've got immortals of various ages. We've got thousands of years for Ramirez, the character played by Sean Connery. We've got an indeterminate amount of time, but at least many many centuries for the Kurgan. We've got a few centuries for for Connor McLeod, who it kind of makes him the younger immortal. Yeah, he's kind of the, he's kind of the scrappy newcomer in the immortals category, which is still ridiculously long compared to everyone else. But and that raises the other of the three movies that are intertwined here. We've got the action movie with all the fighting. We've got the detective story. We also have this story about the pain of being an immortal and the kind of life this means you live. Mm -hmm. And we see that from flashbacks to his time uh, in Scotland and some flashbacks to other points of his life, some of which are used for, for character development, some of which are used for comedy, at least one of which is used for comedy. Yeah, one of which is used for comedy in the weirdest way, but I kind of love that scene. The 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 beginning of the the pain of being an immortal is just the most impactful part, though. The we went out to battle and everyone and most of the men fell, and when I got back up, everyone was mad at me. <laughs> right. He he suffered a mortal wound, and recovered from it. That's not something you did in the 16th century. So of course it must be de the devil. And I guess you know, unlike the 70s. Uh, of the 1970s in the, the, the 16th century, Satan wasn't fun. Yeah, exactly. Remember last episode? This <laughs> one is not that same thing. So he's cast out of his village and uh, needs to make a life for himself, uh, which he does. But then there's the fact that you're going to outlive everybody you know and everybody you love. Yeah, we get to see him have his, his like, find a, a wife, have this idyllic little... Uh, cottage out in this tiny valley near some old ruins get accosted by a Spaniard who comes to teach you the sword and do a training montage but the scene where he comes back and it looks the same visually as it has for all these things but when his wife crests to the hill her hair is gray and she's much older and you're just like oh um, just that whole whole scene that whole sequence it is beautiful and heartbreaking and the music, of course, lends to that. And that was that's one of the songs by Queen. Brian May was inspired to write that song when he saw the early edits of that scene. Oh, really? So and that wasn't that that song was not just written for this movie. It was specifically written for that scene. And gosh, together it is so powerful. My goodness. I mean, it there's a lot of it that is cheesy because of that. It it is a 
It is very much like you need more logs tossed onto the brooding fire. I can do that. Smolder more. <laughs> it, because how long it holds on some of the things it points out here are weird. It it really like I'm all for meditating on that concept, but there's a few moments where I think it ticks a little beyond that even. Yeah, it, and there are points, uh, there are places where, okay, you've made your point. The longer you keep trying to make your point, the more you diminish it. Yeah. So you can, you can keep, you can go back to the fighting or whatever else you need to go back to. And this is where we've got these three different stories. They never quite come together. No. The- I would say that the, the detective story is mostly really interesting and mostly well done. Yeah. The saga of the pain of immortality could have been really good. It has some really good scenes and some that miss or that try too hard and such. And the action and the fighting, which is what this was really promoted as, the fight choreography needed to be better. The story holding these fights together and giving us more stakes than one of them has to win could have been better the final fight in this movie is in a after a very large rooftop battle scene which i admit keeps getting scrambled in my mind with the rooftop fight from blade runner because it's (laughs) because it's like a main a brooding main character fighting a bald guy on a rainy rooftop and i'm like oh my brain yeah we have rain in in uh blade runner and we've got a a fallen water tank on top of the silver cup studios building in highlander yeah so those get spliced in my mind a little more than they should but after that they fall through the floor and the fact that our our detective lady literally just runs off bottom left screen (laughs) And they are left to fight with nothing but blue, large windows in the background makes it feel ridiculously more Broadway play like in that final fight. It really is. Oh, conveniently, we were fighting on top of the of a television and movie production studio. So we fell into an empty soundstage. I guess we'll keep fighting here. Yeah, that's one way to save on set dressing and and, uh, sets that you're going to destroy with the fight scene is just literally set it on an empty soundstage. Also, apparently the Kurgan was full of the creepiest things from Who Framed Roger Rabbit because killing him and getting the final <laughs> quickening results in very disturbing animation sequence. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of a... a it was somewhere between the angels from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark... And the animation of the monster from the id in Forbidden Planet. Yeah. That kind of very, they're trying to animate something mystical, but they fall into being making it cartoony too yeah. often. Congratulations. It's a crackly pile of screaming faces. <laughs> this is the prize. prize? Ho- hooray. I, I won. To, I get attacked by demons. Yeah, I, I, although then it like very hard cuts to voiceover and the most idyllic parts of a uh, historical fantasy st- uh, movie talking about how the prize was apparently the psychic connection you had with deer going to everybody and I'm making the world good now. Yeah, it's like suddenly I know what everybody's thinking. Well, that that doesn't necessarily sound like a prize to me. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that just sounds like the internet and I don't think you want the internet into your head. <laughs> 
But Ramirez did warn uh, McLeod that if the Kurgan won, then mankind was done for it. It would be oppressed forevermore. I guess, yeah, if a, a really horrible bad guy knows what everybody's thinking, that could be used in, in horrible ways. The Kurgan is absolutely an insane bad guy. We see him back in medieval times, and he has apparently gone through everything to find animals with skulls that fit him (laughs) because he has full skull armor. He comes from, he either has been very, very prolific hunter or he comes from the tribe that invented EVA foam (laughs) because he has the most like ostentatious bad guy armor I've seen in a while. The Kurgan people who developed vacuum form. (laughs) Exactly. And then ironically enough, when we get to the everyone's gathering in New York, Connor looks extremely generic and has a fancy place full of art of antiques. The Kurgan has a proper punk aesthetic. Strangely fashionable clothes for that subculture. And is like finding tapes he likes to shove into the tape deck of his car. He's actually adapted to modern day a little bit better in a disturbing way. But he is very much like off the deep end because he is kidnap people and drive the wrong way down the road and definitely the bad guy but why is the bad guy more in touch with now than the good guy and he's the one character with a sense of humor it's a horrible morbid uh, uh, murderous sense of humor but it is a sense of humor yeah for for as horrible as he is he's enjoying his existence in some way that that mcleod is not and maybe that's because the kurgan has never actually made a connection with anybody except the people he wants to kill, because they're also immortal. Um, Ramirez, Sean Connery's character, also had a sense of humor. Yes. He wasn't able to teach uh, McLeod that sense of humor, apparently. No. Ramirez, then, was, R- Ramirez was clever and tricky. And yet, I think some of that might just be from age. You get a certain perspective. We do see um, Ramirez being very serious in trying to spare McLeod the pain that he experienced of falling in love with someone that who will die before you do, no matter what you do. And that was a thousand years ago for Ramirez, so he had a little bit of perspective. Being a young immortal, it probably feels like yesterday that he lost his beloved Heather in the Highlands, uh, because you know he stayed with her until she died, but there was no question that she was going to die. Yeah. The fact that he is inexperienced is actually kind of part of the story, weirdly enough. Yeah. Never stated as bluntly. And it's interesting that there are friendships among immortals. We see it between Ramirez and um, and McLeod. And apparently Ramirez like left Spain and set out to find other immortals, if not McLeod specifically even. And and then we see another friend of um, of McLeod's who he hung out with in the 18th century. And earlier viewings of this movie left me wondering, like, why, if, if you know that the best case scenario is where the last two left and one of us has to kill one another, wh- how, how are these, what, is, what are these friendships like? Now, I can understand Ramirez thinking about it more and having seen this movie a few more times. Ramirez seeking out and training other immortals like McLeod, he's probably looking for immortals who seem to have some kind of a sense of justice or moral compass, figuring that, well, 
if it comes down to me and somebody like the Kurgan, I hope certainly hope I win. If I'm taken out ahead of time, I want there to be other people who are good who are prepared to take on the Kurgans because it's it's better for one of them to win than the Kurgan win if I can't. So maybe that was it. At he's least he's hedging got- the bet on on a, a meaning greater than his himself winning the prize. And that's important. Right. That, that is it, a, yeah. that fits with his forward thinking, slightly, tr- slightly, uh, overly clever, pl- big, big picture seeing planning guy kind of form they give him. And I can see the, to me, the natural approaches to finding that out that this is the nature of your existence would either be, we'll deal with that when we come to it, I'm not going to avoid making friends with people, even even if not especially other immortals, just because we might have to fight one another someday. Or, this is my reason for existing, is to fight other immortals, and it becomes almost a monastic life of training and fighting, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I can, yeah. At least I can understand the logic of both of those. I'm not sure Connor McLeod ever really picked one, but again, he's young for an immortal, so maybe he's working on it. We are all going to be gathered in place to fight to the death. Nothing says you've got to have finished all of your fights by like this Tuesday at this time. (laughs) If it comes down between you and your other immortal best friend, then you two can stay there. And That's- kind of filibuster the final fight as long as you feel the need to. You can kind of make a just judgment between you. You can kind of enjoy the fight as a friendly duel instead of a a hardened fight to yeah. the death that it would be otherwise. There's something like I would rather this end on a on a friendly note instead of a dour one. That's a good point. I mean, what is really compelling them to fight? I mean, the Kurgan wants the prize, and he has a lust for blood, and he's going to fight no matter what. Immortal or not, he's going to fight people. What? Like, this, this, if it is, if it, if it, if in the end it turned out to be McLeod and Ramirez and another friend, why couldn't they just hang out and play yeah. poker every week? And what, what's forcing them to fight? Exactly. The compulsion says we must, we must be in combat. Death only comes with decapitation, but you can't really decapitate someone at Texas Hold'em. So <laughs> we have a regular poker night. Whatever this is, the compulsion, we fought each other. One of us won, but we're all still alive. So we're okay <laughs> till next week. Like, boom, I like we, we've tricked reality. We're great. So, yeah, I guess there are a few different ways in which that works. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, what really draws me to movies like this is that sense of there being a secret underlying our main reality. We talked about that for The Matrix. I am drawn to those kind of movies or those kind of stories in general uh, uh, tremendously. I mean, there's the, whether it's Highlander, The Twilight Bark in 101 Dalmatians, uh, The Matrix, um, The Crying of Lot 49. Any story that has, there's something going on right under the surface of our normal world, and we don't know it. And now we're learning it. I just love that. And this works so well. Oh, yeah. I think we're kind of, we might be starting to lead into our final things there, because we're getting to the meta of it. I think so. And there's probably more for us to talk about uh, with our our final questions. Oh, yeah. Because there's a lot of potential (laughs) inside of this. Well, um, okay, well, let's talk about our, our usual first question for a movie. Screen or no screen? 
Oh, that's difficult with this one because this movie is so much of a mess in some ways. It is. It is it is a ridiculous thing with scenes that go on too long and things that feel disconnected from each other and just awkward bits all over. It, it's a it's a mess of a film. I'm gonna say screen, but it's gonna I feel like it's a screen with a few drinks in you because you're going yeah. this uh, it bugs me. This movie is not a fun or a great watch, but it's interesting. That's a, a good point. I I never end a viewing of this movie thinking that was a great movie or I really enjoyed that. It's gosh, this could have been a really great movie. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I would say that if you can stand that and if you can stand a movie that was re- working really hard to be edgy circa 1985, 86 uh, and all that that implies then uh then, our, yeah, ba- our bad guys brings his sword in multiple pieces <laughs> and assembles it in in his hotel room and practices with it and i'm just thinking this looks like yes. a peloton ad this <laughs> yes. looks like the most deadly peloton ad i don't know what to do yeah well, the, the peloton ads cut away before the prostitute shows up point made <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i would say screen this be aware of what you're getting into and screen it partly because this was the first instance of the concept of Highlander. And yeah, it, this is not a solo ed- endeavor. They they made more things. They made well if we if we look at uh at what's a, what's just available to us from Amazon. We've got this movie, we've got Highlander 3, we've got uh Highlander I think the 4th and the 5th movie and multiple seasons of the TV series. There was a Highlander 2. What? I have not yet seen it. I don't think I ever will see it. I was shattered. I would save you that pain. Yeah, no. There's a reason why you have to pay more money if you want to watch <laughs> that. They don't put it on, on Prime. It's because they really want to make sure you know what you're trying to get yourself into if you dare watch Highlander Yeah, that's 2. a failsafe. They don't want anybody accidentally watching Highlander 2. Yes. Because I've heard that it is just really, really horrible. Because what do you do when you've literally ended the last movie with... All the other immortals are dead. Our immortal won the fight. And one of the much, much later movies, Highlander, The Source, I did see that. I can't unsee it, but gosh, that was terrible. That okay. Was awful. So I don't know, honestly, if any of the, of the movie sequels to Highlander were any good. I don't know. Yeah. But, well... We haven't really asked the question. We've started talking about how the world answered the question. But if you had just seen the movie Highlander, you said, here's a movie from 1986 it's called Highlander. Let's watch it. After that movie, what would your answer be? Would it be revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Reboot. I'm with you. And why do I say reboot? Because before we even made this podcast, after the first time you showed me this movie, I made notes. <laughs> I made notes about the plot points and what they didn't do with them. I've been working on that for years. I've got upstairs on my computer multiple documents of pretty much an entire TV series of new stories because I so want someone to take the concepts presented in Highlander and run with it because there's so much potential. I can't, I find the movie hard to sit through. I've never watched much of the TV series. I've read its wiki articles, but I've not watched it. 
not watch the other movies, but I am a big fan of the concept of Highlander as a series, and I want more of it. I've been trying to hold back this entire review <laughs> because I am, I have such ideas. I want a reboot. And you have just identified how Highlander is like the perfect fan fiction hook. Absolutely. It is a, a tremendous concept. It is filled with potential. It has characters who are filled with potential. And it, the movie does not fulfill any of it when you get down to that. And in a, in a modern era where we have gotten better as a media conglomerate series of companies at being able to maintain a coherent story across multiple pieces of media we can uh, the planning for how you build a long form multi part narrative has gotten better i'd say you can have movies with plans as to how you'll move into the second and third you can have tv series that know how long they'll run and adapt their script more actively i think there's a lot more potential to be able to tell a neat story that keeps its time consistent when you're dealing with this long spans of time of an immortal lifespan. And in a weird way, Highlander is a story that has gotten more cool in a modern day than it was when it was first created. Because I want to see a story about immortals trying to continue or gather for this big fight in an era of facial recognition camera technology. <laughs> try to keep try to keep disguising yourself with faked birth certificates when literally a computer can say you look like this old antique painting. <laughs> I think that would be so cool. It's getting harder to hide. So the fight happens because of that is way more interesting oh, than I just like that. we're being drawn to New York for no good reason but the marketing. We just can't stall any any longer. I mean, in the 1986 movie, we all already see it's getting easier to identify things with like computerized handwriting analysis. You're right. Facial recognition opens up a, a whole new avenue to uh, to reveal this secret. I get a crazy idea right here for you. Does anything say you have to be there when you defeat your opponent? Or can you send a drone with a katana attached to it and sitting in a computer somewhere just get electrically shocked because you won a sword fight in another room? No, I, I don't know, but I want to find out. I want a thing that'll question these things. Just from the movie, I'm trying not to answer with reference to other things that okay. I've seen. Just in terms of the movie, I think you do need a certain physical presence for the magic to work. Okay. But yeah, that's that's it, it opens up the question. At least it, there's the question to be asked. Exactly. And I, I'm, I'm looking at this and saying, I need a miniseries. I need like the Highlander Netflix series because that would be so good. We need to, to watch some of the TV series. Really? Okay. Yes. Because it does what I'm hoping? In all the things where the Highlander movie falls short and the, movie, the, the sequel movies, at least the one or two that I've seen, have tanked, the TV series eventually. I think really, really gets it right. Oh. The first, too much of the first season or so of the TV series. Let me back up. There are, for anything high concept like this, to me, there are two parts. There's the gimmick and there's the lore. And the gimmick is, here's a guy, you can't kill him. The lore is, there is this 
mysterious collection of immortals living down through the ages who ultimately have to fight one another because there can be only one. The first season or so of the TV series is a little bit lazy, and it leans into the gimmick. The, they, they, they touch on the lore, of course. They try to start setting some up, but the storylines themselves, it's, oh, there's bank robbers, and they think they've killed him, but he's the strongest guy around, and he can't be killed, so he can mess with the bank robbers, and it's diehard for 42 minutes. Things like that. They're done okay, but it's ultimately <laughs> unsatisfying. I'm sorry, that's that's die question mark hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> but as the, as the series continues and gets into more later and later seasons, builds out more and more characters, it leans into the lore and develops the lore. And r- everything that I like about it in terms of this secret history of the world and all of this stuff, it, it does that and it does it well and enthusiastically. So my desire to see Highlander in the more modern day is not asking for a reboot of Highlander the movie. It's asking for a reboot of the Highlander TV series I haven't seen. I think so. Okay. And there are definitely ways in which I would say Highlander the TV series. It's hard to say necessarily whether it is a revival or a reboot. There are characters from the original movie I don't want to give too much away, but I want you to see this. There are characters in the, from the original movie who, who appear in the TV series, but ultimately I would say that the TV series is a reboot because they're not overly concerned with getting every bit of continuity right, and they'll change something about the lore if it means they can tell more and better stories, and their, their changes are generally positive ones. So I would say that Highlander the series is uh, a very good reboot of Highlander. And in those terms, I want to see your revival of Highlander the series. I want to see something continuing the lore from Highlander the series and forgetting about any of the movies that incorporate stuff from the series in in the 21st century rather than in the 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 90s when the TV series was on. Okay, yeah. I can get behind this. <laughs> I definitely have to watch that series now because I have not ever done so. I knew it existed, and I know it's out of bounds for our time limits here on the on the show, but maybe we could discuss it in something else once we get some of it watched. But Yeah. Um I'm gonna have to check our, our schedules and our time availability. Oh. Okay. I'm, I'm so tempted to suggest a spin-off podcast. Okay. Where we just watch the whole Highlander series and talk about each episode for 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm not against this idea. We, 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 need to, we need to look at this. This might happen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think you would like it. And I think you'd like it for the very reasons that you, you talked about, the, the, the ideas that you've come up with. I'm not going to guarantee that the, what the TV series came up with is as good or better than what you came up with. Thank you. But it's, it's worth seeing. And I know that the rights to it keep on floating back and forth between production houses. So there's always a chance. It hasn't completely gone away or faded away. There's always this rumor that Highlander will be reignited and and rethought up somewhere. So, And the TV series, it really did catch exactly the right time. I think it started in 1992-93. It was a syndicated TV series at what was really the 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 
the height of syndicated television production, a syndicated dramatic television production, because all the right things came together. For syndicated TV, you have it's not networks. So you've got to go find outlets in every market. You've got to sell it to a TV station. But cable television penetration in the early 90s got to the point where it got easier to sell a syndicated TV series because any given local television station or what would have been a small television station can now reach many, many more people. Before that, before uh, enough people had cable TV, syndicated TV it was hard to really find a big enough audience and therefore it was hard to, to get good budgets for it. And today, there's not a lot of syndicated dramatic television because it's all being produced for specific cable networks. Uh, so I guess I could see the Sci-Fi Channel or somebody else producing a new Highlander series, but there was something about that combination of budget and freedom that 1990s syndicated TV gave it that allowed it to be what it was. Streaming has allowed some things to re to, to take that place because you can build a show for streaming and that uh, build a show with a set number of episodes and then farm it out to one of the different streaming services who will happily pay for it to market as an original, even if it was produced, even if it's 80% before they made the payment for it. True. There is an aspect to the way Netflix and Hulu have purchased series for themselves that is very much like that old syndication method. And so this means that there is more of a chance for that mini series or that that we've got a set story across number of episodes kind of format that might work well for this to be able to be adapted to one of those. You know that you've got a point there. I think there are some significant differences in that you can't maintain the freedom that you could in syndicated television over the course of eight or nine seasons the way you could because not being ad-driven, being subscription-driven, you're probably not going to get that many seasons no, yeah. from a Netflix or yeah. even a Hulu. Netflix rarely does anything past three seasons. Right. You go in with one mostly filmed and two and two more seasons in the scripts, and that's what you show up with because you can't guarantee yeah. four and five past that if you get it. And for, at very least, anything beyond that first season, the people footing the bill are going to, it's, it's one company footing the bill, and they're going to exert a lot more control mm -hmm. versus syndication where it's, here's the production company, we're making this TV series. Do you want to buy the rights to show the next season of it? That doesn't mean you get to tell us what it's going to be. You tell us what the ratings were like, and if they weren't good enough, you won't buy it again, and if we need to adjust it, we will. But that doesn't mean you, the syndication outlets, get control. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have that same level of absolute creativity, that that artist without a commissioner kind yeah. of freedom of drawing. And there are a few TV series like that that I think um, uh, you could point to from the late 80s through late 90s. Uh, but I think Highlander, is the, the, the TV series, is definitely an example of what you can do in that kind of environment. So, I think that, uh, yeah, we've answered the question of revive, reboot, or rest in peace. And so, fortunately, I think, did uh, the media landscape. It was a good enough idea that it couldn't just be left alone. This is one of those movies that kind of helped create this podcast because <laughs> I remember you telling me how much I've got to see this thing. Not because it's perfect, but because it's, f it's, it's this fun, exciting <laughs> thing that sparks your mind. 
And then we wound up with discussions like this before, and now we've put an hour of that out on podcast. <laughs> so I'm happy. And you know, you talk about what TV was like at different times in the past. It's mostly since our Donnie Darko episode, when you described to me how you first saw Donnie Darko. <laughs> I've been thinking more and more about how did I first see what we're, we're coming to. And Highlander is an example of what I tend to think of as the, uh, the, the midnight HBO film festival in my mind. Oh. Because you know, I was in high school. When, when I was in high school, this came out when I was in college. When I was in high school, we got cable TV at my house. <sighs> my goodness. And that included HBO. HBO was a single channel at the time, like everything was. And they would get the rights to show movies. And there were always, uh, over the course of a year, there were many times movies that HBO had the rights to. Nobody else in my family was interested in seeing. And they weren't super popular movies such that HBO was showing them in primetime several times during the month. Maybe they'll show them during primetime once when my family was watching something different. And then they would show them at 12.30 or 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning a few other times during the month. So for a bunch of movies in the 1980s, I would set my alarm and wake up in the middle of the night to go to the basement and at very low volume or with headphones, eventually, watch this movie on my own. And Highlander was one of the first of that um, midnight HBO film festival. Why did you watch these movies the way I played the Pokemon games? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's some similarities here I need to think about. I think so. I might know something coming up at some point soon then. <laughs> okay. Another millennial takeover? Yeah. I don't know why, but there's something tonally that's reminding me. <laughs> I got to see if something's available. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for now. I think and so. Thanks very much uh, for downloading and for listening. We really appreciate that. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with more tales of media from, from the 20, 20th century or other strange times. So, uh, Dad, where can they find you online? Oh, you can find me uh, at the website bymatthewporter.com. You can find me on Twitter at bymatthewporter. You can find me on Twitch as bymatthewporter. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as itemcrafting, on Twitch as itemcraftinglive, and on YouTube as itemcrafting. And you can find the uh, podcast itself at the website immproject.com. That's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes. You'll find a link to our Discord. You'll find a link to our Patreon, uh, which has a bunch of uh, bonus material. Uh, thank you very much for uh, anybody who's able to support us there. And if you can't support us there, please keep uh, downloading the podcast. And if you can give us a rating on iTunes, that'll help other people find uh, the IMMP. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPcast. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>